Kevin, is this working now? We're doing good? All right, I'm an addict from Orlando. My name's Biff. Uh, it's real interesting. I'm listening to um, a lot of the speakers so far and trying to figure out what I'm doing here. So uh, maybe you'll be able to tell me when I'm done, but uh, it, it's been um, an unbelievable journey. And, and the thing that I think we all are real, real clear on is I have not heard anybody up here who's not passionate, who's not madly in love with Narcotics Anonymous. And I think one of the things that is real, real important to me is when I look at the people who've been around any length of time and are still around and are still involved, that's what is the one common bond, is that every one of us is passionate about Narcotics Anonymous and has this mad love affair with this fellowship that is like nothing else in the world. Uh, I've watched people up here that I've disagreed with vehemently and violently over the last 20 years who've disagreed with me the same way. And you know what? It doesn't matter because God has been in control. The fellowship's turning out the way it's supposed to. Our disagreements don't seem to matter, and we're all here, and we all love each other and the fellowship. And uh, that's been a really difficult lesson for me to learn. Uh, I grew up in an area where I was either right or I shut up. You know, I, you weren't allowed to be wrong. If you were wrong, you weren't allowed to admit it. And I brought that wonderful character trait to Narcotics Anonymous with me, just like everybody else I met who was in service. Must have grown up in the same household. Yeah. Uh, I am not, I was not in any of the hotbeds of recovery that you heard about earlier. Uh, California, the only time I've been to California when I got clean was on a cross-country trip with a dog, two stepchildren, a wife, and all the dope we could hide. Uh, and um, I thought when I got to California, even then, that I was just going to stay there and they were going to have to ship all my stuff. And when I got to the Pacific Ocean, all I wanted to do was turn around and go east. Um, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. But then I got clean, and again, California became Mecca. And someday I was going to get there. I don't know what I expected to do when I got there, but um, I got clean uh, in, in um, kind of the same kind of ways that most people got clean. Somebody else stepped in and said, enough. And I kind of looked at him and said, yeah, I guess so. Uh, I really wanted to commit suicide, but didn't have the courage so that when somebody offered me an alternative, I was ready to jump at it. I got clean in, in West Palm Beach, Florida. There was one NA meeting at the time. Uh, and uh, it was a, a group that's still functioning called the Mainline Group. I got clean in September of 1980. And the Mainline Group was one of, I believe, three groups from, of Narcotics Anonymous in the state of Florida at that particular time. Not that it would have mattered to me, not that I had a clue what any of that stuff meant. Um, I went into a treatment facility and, and uh, they, let, they insisted that we go to outside meetings, but Narcotics Anonymous didn't count. Because as far as they were concerned, there was no recovery in Narcotics Anonymous. Uh, the interesting thing was was that the liquid fellowship, as I heard it referred to, or what I call AA, because if I'm deeply grateful of who my parents are, I don't have to be ashamed. I also don't have to be like them. Uh, 
You know, one of the things I learned for me is that there are a lot of things about my father I'm not proud of and didn't want to be him. Unfortunately, I became more like him than I wanted to be, but there are also a lot of things about my father I was proud of and hoped to emulate them. And I kind of feel the same way about AA. I am grateful to them for giving us the steps and allowing us to adopt them. I'm grateful for all the help they gave us, and they gave us a lot more help than some people want to admit. Uh, and I'll talk about that and how they helped us in, in Orlando and Florida when I talk about the history there. But if I'm grateful, I also show respect with that gratitude. And the way I show respect is by honoring their traditions, and the way I honor their traditions is not to share at their meetings. Uh, I do not have anything to share at that meeting. Uh, I will be happy to listen. And if I go to a meeting for some reason now, because a friend of mine is celebrating an anniversary there or something, if it's not an open meeting, I don't go in. And if it is an open meeting and I'm called on for some weird reason, I just tell them I'm there to listen. And I think that those of us who go to these meetings and then bitch because they get upset because we introduce ourselves as an addict don't show a whole lot of respect. You know, they have the right to their traditions the same as we have the right to ours. We expect ours to be honored. It might be a good idea to honor theirs. Um, that being said, I can't remember the last time I've been in an AA meeting, so it really doesn't matter. Uh, I was listening to Terry earlier, and I was telling Chris over there that I would swear that Terry heard me share at Recovery on the Ridge because he gave my whole share when he talked up here. He talked about, and, and I wasn't, and believe it or not, I wasn't as gentle as Terry, and, and that's scary. Uh, but what, what I said when I was sharing uh, in Tennessee was, I'm really glad that I'm not trying to get clean today. All right? And that makes me very sad. But the reason I'm glad I'm not trying to get clean today is that I go to a meeting today and there's a parking lot full of cars and the meeting's half empty. Right? And when we used to go, there was one car and the meeting was full. Right? That was because what you heard the guys from California talking about. We piled everybody in the car. It was a privilege to go pick up somebody for a meeting. And if you got to pick up two people, you were, uh, you were on top of the world. And the further they were away from the meeting, the more of a privilege it was. And we lost that. And I'm not quite sure how we lost it, but I'm real sure it's gone. We're so afraid of this litigious society that we live in now that we don't make 12-step calls because somebody might get sued. Good God, if somebody thought that way when I got clean, I'd be dead. You know, and I know a lot of these people who are here with 20 years and more are in the same spot I'm in. What makes me think the person who's where I was 23 years ago doesn't need what I needed? How are they going to get it on the phone if I couldn't? Who's going to babysit them? What are they going to do? They're going to steal something from my house? Big damn deal. Before I got clean, I didn't have anything anyhow. So, so I mean, I'm afraid to take an addict in my house because my toys are nice now and I might lose one of them. That just doesn't work for me. All right. Maybe that's why I don't have much to lose anymore. Who cares? You know, there's, it's just been an unbelievable journey. 
I got clean in the treatment center. Uh, I was sent to a physician's recovery house after that in what was the East Coast mecca of Narcotics Anonymous known as Atlanta. God help us. <laughs> but Atlanta at that time was all there was about recovery, especially in the Southeast, but pretty much on the East Coast. Uh, I went to a recovery house, or it was actually a halfway house for recovering physicians, and I was a podiatrist, so right away I didn't fit. You know, because I was almost a doctor, right? Then I was an addict, right? So I was almost an alcoholic, and it was ministered to by the Junior League of Atlanta, which are these nice Christian women, and I was Jewish. So I was almost Jew, almost Christian, you know? And so the message I got from the time I got there was that if I would just say this when they said that, I would fit. When we say alcohol, you say drugs. When we say Christ, you say God. When we say this, you say that. And something just didn't feel right. You know? But it was the only game in town. I mean, we got to go to NA meetings, and they didn't count for those outside meetings either. But for some reason or other, there were two or three of us that didn't care whether it counted. We had nothing else to do anyhow. I mean, they weren't going to let us go anywhere. They weren't going to let us do anything. So... Um, and my first exposure, other than the NA meeting I went to in West Palm, and I need to tell you, I've sat here and I've heard people share, I walked into my first meeting, I felt right at home, people made me feel real, real welcome. I worked in, walked into my first week meeting in West Palm and did whatever I did when I wasn't high, and that was stay as close to the wall as I could, as far back from everything, and try to disappear. And they let me. Nobody came up to me, nobody said hello. Nobody said anything at all. I walked out the door when it was over and went, wow, man, that's freaky. I'm not going back there. I didn't identify with anything because I couldn't hear anything because I was too scared. And there was nobody there that came over to make me feel less scared. And so, like, you've heard people come here and share that they were welcome to their first meeting and they want to make sure that that continues to happen. I wasn't, and I want to make sure that doesn't continue to happen. What I did do was I went to meetings in Atlanta. And the first meeting I went to was the same place everybody's talked about. This broken down clubhouse near where Bo lived. Alright? Now here we are, a bunch of recovering docs. I'm the only one wearing jeans because I was always just a little bit of an iconoclast, but you know. The rest of them are all in khakis and button down shirts, pot, shunned up penny loafers, and there's about 15 hogs parked out in front of this clubhouse. And the whole front porch, which was sagging anyhow, was sagging even more under the weight of about 15 bikers, the smallest of whom probably weighed 280. You know, it was, it, it looked like deliverance to us, man, you know. <laughs> right? And I'd not ever been at a real NA meeting, right? So here we come, the three of us shiny tailed little doctors walking up to this meeting. And this guy was about 300 pounds wearing just coveralls picked me up straight in the air in a bear hug, spun me around, and said, Welcome to Narcotics Anonymous. I said, Oh, shit, I'm going to get raped. <laughs> I will never get out of here alive. And those of you who know me would be totally amazed at the fact that I sat through that entire meeting without uttering a peep. You know, not a sound came out of my mouth. But I tell you what. 
that's where it happened because I did hear what I needed to hear. And I hear, heard that I did not have to think something else when somebody said something. And they weren't dealing with the differences. All they were dealing with was that we all suffered from the same disease. And that they were talking about how not to use and how to begin to recover from that disease. And even way back then, in 1980, they were talking about solutions there. They weren't talking about the drama that we heard talked about earlier today or, or last night. They were talking about solutions. And I saw all this stuff and I said, I got to get involved. And boy, I can't wait to get back to Florida and go to NA. And I went back to Florida after I got through with all this stuff and there wasn't any NA. And, um, the idea of starting a meeting was inconceivable to me at that point. didn't know anything about it. But eventually moved to Orlando with about a year clean in uh, 1981 and was referred to a young people's AA meeting. Now, I was 39 when I got clean, so it was a little presumptuous of me at about 40 to assume that I was, quote, a young people, unless you were talking about my emotional IQ, but, uh, but I went to this young people's meeting, and then as I walked into the meeting, I was told, there's a meeting in the back room. You need to go there. And I'm saying, these people don't know me. And that's how I knew I looked like a dope fiend. They knew I wasn't who, I, I didn't come here for the front room meeting, you know. <laughs> So I went to the back room because I didn't know what the hell was going on. I was willing to check anything out. Go to the back room and sit down, and all these people are mumbling, and somebody leans over to me and says, want to go to an N.A. meeting? And I'm going, yeah, I want to go to an N.A. meeting. He goes, shh. And it's like, wow, man, do I get a password, too? You know, I mean, what are we going to do here? And um, that was a gentleman who became my first sponsor, my first real sponsor. Of course, I had... Sponsors in name, usually traveling salesmen without phones, but um, that's a whole other story. Anyway, I, uh, I went, we hooked up, this guy and I hooked up, and he took, uh, took me to a meeting that was an H&I meeting, except we didn't know it at the time. Um, it was being held in a teenage facility in Orlando, and it was truly the first meeting that was going on, even though it wasn't really an NA meeting because there weren't NA members conducting the meeting. It was being conducted by the staff. But the staff were two counselors, both of whom were in recovery, um, sort of, kind of. Uh, one of them was the guy in a wheelchair who had a phenomenal message, just couldn't hear it. And he died of this disease. The other one was a former Playboy bunny, and you know what scares me is I remember his name and not hers. Yeah. <laughs> Something wrong with that picture. You know, but... Uh, she was clean at that time, and then later on in her recovery decided that um, alcohol was not a drug. Um, I understand she's clean again, and I pray she is. But I learned something at that first meeting I went to, and that's that I have to hear the message, not judge the messenger. Because those people brought the message I needed to hear, even though they couldn't walk it. Right? And I spend so much time judging your program rather than listening to what you have to say. And I miss half of what I need to hear because I'm too busy doing what I do best, which is trying to find some way to separate me from you.
So in spite of all of that insanity, what became known as the three musketeers of the Orlando area started Narcotics Anonymous. We had no clue what we were doing. One person other than me had been to one meeting, and we heard there was such a thing as the Florida region started. And so we decided we were going to be, we were going to start meetings. Well, I was practicing at the time. I, I talk freely about being a doctor now because I don't practice, so it's safe. You know, no, I can't get you a script, and no, I don't have a diagnosis, and no, I can't refer you anywhere. You know, but at the time, I wasn't real clear to people on what I did from the podium. Everybody knew, but it was like, we don't talk about it. Well, one of the advantages of having my own practice was I had my own copy machine. Right? And that meant that everything Narcotics Anonymous needed was free. Because right? we didn't know jack about traditions. We certainly didn't know anything about any of that stuff. The first meeting list we had in Orlando was printed on the back of stationery that we weren't using any longer. So it had my ex-partner's name on the other side. <laughs> but we only needed one side, and the paper was free, you know? And so that was our first meeting list. And, and uh, every time we had a literature workshop, it had to be held somewhere either in or close to my office so we could use the copy machine to get the stuff circulated. And, of course, the literature that we did get from Jimmy was never enough, never fast enough. We didn't see anything wrong with printing it on the copy machine and, and folding it up as best we could and giving it out to anybody who wanted it. Um, we also didn't see anything wrong with bringing 12 and 12s into meetings. We didn't see anything wrong with having speakers from the Liquid Fellowship because we didn't know what else to do. You know, so when we talk about, you heard somebody up here saying, if you don't honor the traditions, you will pay the price. Yes, you will. But the best way I learned to do anything is to do it wrong and then realize it was wrong, admit it was wrong, and find out what the right thing was to do. Uh, so being an addict and not going from one extreme to the other, um, I went from violating all the traditions to being known in the old days in Florida as an N.A. Nazi. Right? Um, and they kept saying to me, but if you're Jewish, how can you be a Nazi? I said, well, they didn't care whether you were Jewish or not. You could join. You know, there was no requirement. Anybody could be a Nazi, you know. All you had to do was believe that there was only one way and be narrow-minded, closed-minded, and not willing to hear anything anybody else had to say. You know, made that requirement easy for most of us to fulfill. And we did a good job of it, you know, and, and, and it was amazing. As the fellowship grew in Orlando, when these poor folks in the treatment centers would come in and not know anything about what they could and couldn't say, and they would talk about something or make an announcement that was a violation, all the heads in the room would snap around to see what I was going to do. You know, you're going to get up, you're going to throw him out, you're going to tell him he can't say that? You know, and it took me a while to realize that wasn't a good position to be in. But N.A. in Orlando is an amazing phenomenon. Because here were three of us, and I'll say this and I'll say this to the, uh, well, one of them's passed away, may he rest in peace. But out of the three of us, I was the only one who believed that you made a commitment to one program. Any program you wanted to, but that was the one you were committed to. I was the only one who believed that you couldn't serve two masters. I was the only one that believed you were setting yourself up for a conflict of interest if you tried to be of service to two different types of groups or fellowships at the same time. 
And I was, therefore, in the middle of controversy almost from the beginning of all of this stuff. So controversy and I are not strangers. When I hear all these other, quote, controversial people up here, I can relate. Um, and I think one of the best things that happened to me out of all this controversy was the more controversial I became, the more open-minded I needed to become in order to survive. Because the more I was sure that my way was the only way, the more I knew I was wrong. You know, sometimes my way still may be the best way, but there is no only way. Right? The only way is the way that works for you. And as long as you respect other people's ways and don't try to tell them what to do, God bless, go in peace. You know, stay clean, don't use. The other thing that amazed me about... Um, the fellowship was everything I needed to hear I heard in that first meeting in Atlanta. And they were stomping and screaming in those days about the basics. And the basics were four things. Don't use, go to meetings, get a sponsor, work the steps. We didn't have anything about reading literature then because there was a white book. You know, a few pamphlets. So they didn't have anything added to that. You know what? You know how I stay clean today? I don't use, I go to meetings, I work the steps with my sponsor. I, I, I was sure that at least at 20 years there would be a secret I'd find where that wasn't what I had to do, you know? Still haven't found it. Maybe 35. I'll check with Mel later. But uh, I'll call you on Tuesday, Mel, see if they gave you the answer after that. But, but um, the basics, it's just what amazed me is how long it took me to hear it. You know, it was said to me the first meeting I went to. The other thing that was said to me was anything I put before my recovery I would lose. Well, what do you mean? You know, I only and in recovery, I lost money, businesses, a wife or two, a few significant relationships, right? And only by the grace of God and the love of Narcotics Anonymous did I not lose my recovery, right? Because all those other things were important. I remember having three years clean, saying, "Okay, God, you can have anything you want from me. Just don't screw with my relationship." Right? It was gone within a year, you know. Anytime you want to get rid of something, tell God he can't have it. So, well, at least that's my experience. But, but back to the history in Orlando. Orlando was three guys and a coffee pot. And it was a year later, it was three guys and a coffee pot. And it was so incestuous that... They could tell my story without even my lips moving. You know, it was so bad that I would go to the bathroom, the other two guys would wait outside to make sure I didn't run away. You know, uh, if one of us left town without telling the other ones, it was like a search party was sent out. You know, if you didn't show up at a meeting, God forbid, you know, and hadn't checked in first. You know what's sad? We don't do that anymore. What's really sad is I was talking to somebody earlier today, and here's this guy that in his hometown, and he says to me, I haven't seen him for a while. But he's got a lot of clean time, so nobody calls him. Right? Or he's new, so nobody calls him. I don't know why we have such good excuses not to call him. Am I afraid of newcomers? Sure I am. Anybody here who's not? You know, so what? I was afraid of everything. I had to learn to be afraid and do it anyhow. We 
formed meetings in Narcotics Anonymous, this one. We had one guy who wasn't working, the other two of us were working, and he drove around anytime he found a place that would let us have a meeting. At coffee that night, we would say, okay, we're having a meeting at this place on this and this night, until we had six out of the seven nights filled. We would not fill that Monday night where the Young People's AA meeting was, because for some reason or other, we thought we had to go there. And it took us almost three years before we realized, or at least I realized, that I didn't have to go there. So it took three years to get a Monday night meeting in Orlando after we got the other six. But what was interesting was we would name the group, decide the format, and what time it was going to be held all at this meeting at coffee. Because it was just us anyhow. And then we found out there was going to be a regional meeting. So the three of us went to Daytona, which is where the regional meeting was, and went to this regional meeting, and it was the second or third meeting of the region. I think it was the third. And the person who was chairing at the time says, is there anybody here who wasn't here last month? And we raised our hands. So where are you from? I said, Orlando. They said, well, the Orlando area is here. So we became the Orlando area, and group conscience was two out of three. You know, we'll go in the back and we'll talk about it. Two of us agree that's a group conscience, right? <laughs> now, the really insane thing was is there were groups from South Florida that represented hundreds of addicts per group. And we had the same vote on the regional floor as the ASR, they were called in those days, from, from that particular area representing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of addicts. And we didn't think there was anything wrong with that. You know, we were comfortable with that. So were they. It was very strange, but it's very strange now. It wasn't strange then. It was a very, very interesting time. There were several things going on. Um, we were writing a book, and so every time we passed the basket, we passed it five or six times afterwards until there was enough money in the basket for us to feel proud of what we were going to send to that committee that was writing the book. And it was insane because it was just the three of us. Hell, we could have just put the money in the basket and stopped the shit, you know? <laughs> but everything had to be a production, you know? But eventually people started to come. And um, I felt really, really sorry for the first person that walked into that room. I think that he's probably still running. Yeah, That poor guy was smothered. He was given the key, the coffee pot. <laughs> I think he might have had a week clean, you know. Yeah. Well, we didn't have a GSR because you got to understand, here was, we were the Orlando area, right? So I was the vice chair, the PI chair, and the H&I chair. Somebody else was the chair and something else, and then the other person was the ASR and something else, and, you know, that was the Orlando area. What the hell do you need a GSR for? Yeah? There weren't any groups. So, anyhow, this poor guy, we learned a little bit from our experience with this first guy. His name, his name was Jim. You know, and Jim, wherever you are, we're sorry, man. We hope you're okay. You know, but eventually people started coming. You know, and I remember us sitting in the front of the room saying, we know they're there, man. We know they're there. Where are they? They've got to come. We can't be the only three addicts in Orlando. You know, 
And eventually they started to come. And last year Orlando had its 22nd anniversary convention. And to tell you what it felt like to stand at the head of that room on a Saturday night, look out after the main speaker meeting and see 1,500 addicts in a circle when there were three of us. And you worry about whether this program works or whether we're growing or whether we can carry a message. You know, I was also told, like none of y'all were, I'm sure, that if I wanted recovery, I had to go to the Liquid Fellowship and bring it back. You know, and my question was, what do I do, sit next to somebody and wait for it to rub off? I mean, how do I get it there and bring it back? You know, is it contagious? You know, and they said, no, you got to work for it. And I said, then what the hell difference does it make if I'm there or here? i got to work. You know, same steps, just ours are better. You know, doesn't deal with a substance. I hadn't had a problem with a substance. I had a problem with life and me and a disease that kept telling me no matter what I did, it wasn't going to be good enough and that I wasn't okay. And that if you knew me like I knew me, you'd hate my guts. Because I did. Orlando and A continued to grow. Our best efforts to destroy it were unsuccessful. We violated every tradition. We could take, now you got to understand how dangerous I was in service. I was three hours away from being a board certified parliamentarian. And I knew the traditions. Just ask me. So, thinking I knew the traditions, knowing I knew Robert's rules of order, I could take an area service meeting without an agenda or any business conduct, drag it out for seven hours and accomplish nothing but create resentments, and did it on a monthly basis. And Narcotics Anonymous didn't go away. And it continued to grow. And people from the East Coast in Melbourne and Vero came to our area to learn how to have an area service meeting. Talk about the blind, leading the blind somebody was talking about earlier. And the Orlando area, as it grew, originally encompassed what are now seven areas in Narcotics Anonymous in Orlando, in, in Florida. And these people came from hundreds of miles to sit in a circle on Sunday and watch the insanity. And they came back. And they kept coming back because every one of us knew that we didn't know what the hell we were doing, but we would get there eventually as long as we kept coming back. And the folks from South Florida kept telling us what to do. And that was the nearsighted leading the blind. You know, They had some idea. They had some exposure. Right? But the thing that amazed us is when our group started to falter, once they started to grow, and we didn't know what to do. People would drive all the way from Fort Lauderdale or Miami on a weeknight to Orlando just to share in a meeting so that they could keep that meeting going. When we wanted to disband the area, they came from all over the state of Florida to support us. Why? When you understand the why of that, you'll understand why we're standing here today. Those people knew why they were clean, knew what we kept hearing about, this contact, this, this need to give it away, this need to make sure that we continue to reach out. And they were willing to do something that I don't hear talked about anymore. When I got clean, they said, are you willing to go to any lengths for your recovery? 
Now what I hear is, well, geez, that meeting's all the way across town. Uh, I have one closer to my house tomorrow. I'm not going tonight. We, I think what we did, at least my opinion, is that we had to do so much. We had to go to such lengths that we said, geez, we want to make it easier for the people that follow us. We don't want them to have to do what we had to do. We did our job too damn well. We made it so damn easy that they take it for granted. We also used to be tough as hell. Sit down, shut up, take the cotton out of your ears, stick it in your mouth. I'll tell you when you have something to share. You know? And we still felt like we were the most important person there. After you told us that. Because you noticed us. And you noticed that we didn't know what the hell we were talking about. And you cared enough to tell us that. We also used to say baby and bury him. Now we say, oh, that's all right. Don't worry about it. It's only your eighth relapse this month. You know, keep coming back. This is not a joke, folks. You can't keep doing that shit and not die. I'm sorry, I guess I shouldn't have said shit, but, you know. Orlando and Florida grew and prospered no matter what we did. And that's when we really clearly understood how this was God's program. We, you know, I mean, I could tell you the millions and millions and millions of things we can do wrong, but let me tell you a little bit about our experience with Alcoholics Anonymous. I had a practice in Orlando, and I was working at the time. We didn't know anything about traditions, and the AA folks kept calling us and saying, can you get these folks out of our meetings? You know, can you help us out? Can we send them somewhere? Yeah, fine. Call me when you get a phone call, and I'll go get this guy, or I'll go pick up this guy, right? Well, we had one of the three musketeers thought he was a bit of a producer of some type, you know, television, movie stuff. So we did PSAs. Oh, God, were they ugly. Um, we thought they were the coolest thing in the world. We didn't understand why the region didn't want to use them. Uh, the first one, and I'll never forget it, is a guy sitting in a lounging chair with his works in a glass jar, coughing a nod, with John crying, there's a hole in Daddy's arm where all the money goes, playing in the background, and a phone number. Right? And we didn't understand why N.A. didn't want to use that, you know? What was wrong with that? Couldn't everybody relate? Didn't they know what we were trying to say? And the scary part was the phone number was the Alcoholics Anonymous hotline. <laughs> yeah, we didn't violate any traditions. The other one were these two ladies sitting in a restaurant talking about, do you realize my doctor won't renew my prescription? I guess I'll have to get another doctor. You know, does that mean anything to you? Didn't mean shit to me. You know, and then I finally figure out, oh, yeah, I can't beat this doc. I'm going to go beat another one. It would just sail right over my head. But what did I know? I was a doctor. I beat myself, you know. I had this, you know, I, I never had to worry about copping. I just had to worry about showing up to work so I could continue to cop. We, uh, 
would get these phone calls from the alcoholic. And, and here I am. I'm sitting there treating a patient, and my nurse would come in and say, uh, Dr. Kramer, Alcoholics Anonymous is on the line. Oh, great. <laughs> so I had uh, great anonymity within the community. It's kind of like uh, my first hospital staff meeting, right? I've been in treatment for five months. I'm back in the hospital staff meeting. I'm very tired. I'm half asleep. And they call on me for something. And I wake up and they say, my name's Biff. I'm an addict. You know? <laughs> you know what? That started the physician recovery network in that hospital. Because now the administrator knew I was an addict. I wasn't going anywhere. You know, so now I had to do uh, interventions for the other guys on staff, you know. And they loved that because I was only a podiatrist, you know. And they were real doctors. So it was, it was off, you know, paybacks for a mother and I got mine, you know. <laughs> but um, so we did these things. And Alcoholics Anonymous finally understood that it wasn't okay for them to let us use their phone number. So they said, okay. You guys got to get your own phone number. We'll refer to that phone number. So we decided to have a fundraiser start a helpline. So we, uh, we got this church, and we got this guy that was going to be a DJ, and my uh, ex-wife was in charge of running that fundraiser. And the DJ did something, and the equipment got screwed up, and we didn't have any music. But this was a really unique kind of hall, and the church had these huge doors, and there was this guy that had a Vega hatchback with a killer sound system, right? You know where the DJ came from. We pulled the damn Vega into the damn dance, opened the hatchback, and had a music system. Things were interesting in the old days. We were willing to go to any length. We would do whatever it took, right? So we had a fundraiser, and we raised $500, start a helpline. And that helpline, thank God, 20 years later, is still functioning. And that helpline is the number one priority of the Orlando area. More important than conventions, more important than any other type of service, because if they can't find you, it don't do any good to get the word out. If they don't get... Now, here's my bitch, and I make it public in Orlando. If you know me, I make it very public. But how good does it do to get you on the phone if you don't go get them or help them? You're going to give them a Yahoo map on how to get to a meeting? Thank you so much. I could use the Yahoo map. I wouldn't be calling you all, you know. Not only don't I know where the meeting is, I don't even know where the hell I am, you know. You want a Yahoo map? Tell me where I am. Come get me, you know. When I spoke at that, uh, at that convention in Tennessee, the first thing I said to, some, to them up there after I told them I was glad I wasn't recovering now, and when was the last time one of you people made a 12-step call, a real 12-step call? Don't raise your hands. I don't want to embarrass you, but think about it. And then I'll ask the people who are here now, where would we be if there weren't 12-step calls? All these people you thought were so damn important that you paid for us to come here? If you, did, if you took care of us the way you're taking care of the newcomer now, we wouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. 
I, I guess I'm a lot more passionate about that than I thought I was. I thought I was going to get up here and just talk about service and all that stuff. Service has been uh, the lifeblood of my recovery. You know, somebody said the people who are passionate are still there. I don't remember not holding some position on some level. Um, and there were a couple of things that I want to get into real quickly that were real highlights of my recovery where I got an opportunity to be of service to this fellowship, and I felt like it was really something that left me feeling good. One of them was being the world PI chair for three years. I drove Sally Evans crazy because she was the chairman of the board at that time, board of trustees, and we kept coming to her for rulings on what PI could and couldn't do. And nobody bothered to ask them before, so they didn't know what to do with it when we asked them. But before that happened, um, it was interesting. You know, they had all kinds. You heard people talking about, well, Jim was talking about the requirements in order to serve. Well, it was interesting. I, as, as a, an RSR, I had been on the finance committee. Well, the first thing we did at the finance committee was decide we needed to disband the finance committee because they didn't need one. Right? So after serving a year on the finance committee and moving that it be disbanded, I had nowhere to go my second year in service. Right? Okay. Usually if you were an RSR and wanted to stay around, you did something with the committee you had served on while you were an RSR, like be the chairperson or something. You know. So I'm looking around and I'm looking around and the chairperson from PI comes to me and says to me, we can't make you the chair, but we need a vice chair. And I said, the only PI I've ever done, I've tried to stay anonymous because I'm a doctor. You know, and I don't want, you know, you could tell what a great job I was doing of it, by the way, from what we just talked about. But I still had, you know, my denial was good. And, and so I said, I don't, I've not got any experience in PI, really. And they said, well, come to the meeting. So I come to the meeting, and they nominate me for vice chair. My PI experience is nil. None. Right? They said, well, you'll be the vice chair. You'll have a chair here. You'll work with them, and you'll learn PI, and then you'll be ready. You'll have natural leadership ability, and you speak well, and da-da-da-da. So you'll be great, you know, and you look good. That was all you, oh, you look good, right? Which later became a joke in, in, in the World Service Conference uh, the following year, and I think Terry was part of the group that started it, but it was What's a PI starter kit was two gold chains and a sport cup, you know. <laughs> and uh, because looking good was real important for PI, you know. But, but what happened was is, is um, they elected me vice chair, and, I, and this guy that, I was, that was the chair uh, was in the Navy. He got shipped out, like out of the country, you know. He was no longer in San Diego. So after three months of all this phenomenal experience, none, I was now the PI chair. Wonderful. Right? And we were totally disorganized. The one thing that had happened is that we had gotten the guide to public information the year before. So being addicts, everybody already wanted to revise it before it had ever been used. So the first thing I had to do was say, look, we're not writing this year. Guys, we haven't even read it yet. You know, let's not revise it until we read it. Let's not revise it until we try it. Let's try and see if it works and then fix it if it's broken. Oh, but we got to change this wording and we got to change that wording. Can we wait a year? Can we, can we make an agreement to wait a year? Then we'll change anything you want. So that was the first thing. The next thing that happened was I began my recruitment campaign. 
And that was I went and looked for anybody I thought was willing to work, was willing to teach or learn, and was willing to show up and say, hey, look, I've been there for you. Could you do me a favor? I need some help on PI. Come to the next quarter. And that's where I got my I got my vice chair, grabbed him on the way to an H&I meeting. He was on his way to the H&I quarter, and then I grabbed him. And I said, Steve, where are you going? So I'm going to H&I. I said, yeah, they got plenty of help. I need you. And they did. H&I had plenty of help then, and I did need him. And he did come. And that was the kind of way we did recovery. I got you by the neck. You ain't going nowhere, sucker, till I'm done with you, you know. You're going to do what I think is necessary, or you're going to explain to me why it doesn't have to be done. And he became an awesome vice chair and chair of public information. And he and I sat and brainstormed, and we started something called multi-regional learning desks, which are now known as zonal forums. God knows we didn't know what we were doing, but we knew what we wanted to do, and that was it didn't make a whole lot of sense for us to travel from region to region when we could get all a bunch of regions together and make one trip. Unfortunately for me, his best efforts on the first one he organized was Rockford, Illinois in January. I'm from Florida, folks. You know, it was 80 degrees when I got on the plane, and it was minus 10 and raining when I got off in Chicago. And I said, this is the best we could do? It was awesome. It was great. People came from seven or eight states around there took notes, had fun, shared experience, strength, and hope, and we said, you know, this thing could work. And then we kind of realized that maybe the function of PI on a world level was not to do PI, but to teach people how to do PI. All right? So we did. We had something called mock presentations, and we taught people how to do presentations, and we critiqued our presentations and taught them how to make their presentations better. And we taught them how to answer questions. And we taught them how to be of service to their regions. And they went back and taught the areas how to be of service. And it works. You know, it trickles up and down all the time if we'll let it. That was one of the things that happened that, that was extraordinary. The other thing was, is my sponsor at the time, and still is, he's been my sponsor for 20 years now, or a little more, was chairperson of the World Service Conference, and I was an RSR from Florida. And it was 1985, and we were talking about the final revision to the Little White Book. And he appointed me as chairperson of that ad hoc committee, and then I listened to him appoint the rest of the committee, and I went to him afterwards, and I said, I thought you loved me. What did you do? And he said, what? And he, I mean, we had people on that committee who absolutely hated each other, who didn't agree on what time of day it was, who couldn't agree on, you know, you heard it discussed before, on all kinds of things. And we had a week to come up with a consensus to give to the fellowship on what the white book should look like. And I'm here to tell you, I remember having lots of meetings, and I don't remember anything else that happened. But I can tell you that what came out of that subcommittee was 100% unanimous consensus. Everybody gave where they had to give and stood where they had to stand. And when it was all done, nobody on that subcommittee, no matter how diverse their political philosophy of Narcotics Anonymous was, was uncomfortable with what we presented. That, to me, was God working when we couldn't do it. There was no way we as humans or even recovering addicts could have done that. 
No way. If you'd have seen the group, you'd have known what I was talking about. I've found for me that I usually don't get what I want in service, thank God. But I've found that there is no conflict in God's will. And if there is conflict, then somewhere along the line, my will or somebody else's is in the way. And it'll all sift itself out if I just stand back and watch the cartoon. But I also found that this is God's program, and no matter how bad I try to screw it up, it keeps growing. So I need not to get that bent out of shape when things aren't going the way I think they are. I need to go back to my home group so that that newcomer is welcome to that meeting. And then in spite of the fact that I didn't like what happened at area or region or world, I'm going to be there to say, welcome to Narcotics Anonymous, you never have to use again. Because that counts. The other shit is nice. But it'll work itself out. If I'm not there, I'm not staying clean. And that's what this whole deal is all about. My vision for Narcotics Anonymous has come true ten times over already. When we got involved in PI, that was the conference that I was in where the other countries started to show up again. And I watched us feel guilty because we hadn't been international and bend over backwards and kind of give up things for the other countries. And I've watched us come back to a balance. I've watched what Jim was talking about earlier when I was sent to Florida as an art from to the World Conference as an RSR from Florida. They gave me $75. Don't spend it all in one place. When they said end the resources, they meant in your pocket in those days. Right? That was a seven-day conference in those days, including round-trip airfare and hotel meals, rental cars, $75. Don't spend it all in one place. Right? Now it doesn't matter where you come from. The conference pays so that everybody who needs to be there will be there. It's the way it should be. It's the way it needs to be. Now it's your ability and willingness to serve, not your bank book. It doesn't mean that God didn't find some of us who had a nice bank book for a while and find a good thing for us to do with it, like give it to the fellowship, because we were going to screw it up. At least I was. I was no good with my own money. Um, the other vision that I had was I got to go to Australia in 1988. And I spent a month in Australia teaching the PI subcommittees around the continent how to do public information. Did half of that come out of my own pocket? Probably a little bit more, but so what? I had it. I wasn't going to use it. Went for a good cause. Now that they don't have to find people who can afford it, just people who can do it. And that's a big deal. And that's part of the vision. But the other vision was we were talking about going to Russia. We were talking about not having to have meetings in Israel in bunkers. We were talking in those days about the Japanese being able to have meetings in public so that they didn't have to hide from the ancestor worship that went on there and the sin that it was to be an addict. We were talking about the countries in the Arabic world, the Muslim countries, being allowed to have meetings without being afraid of having their throats slit or being stoned or all those other things. We were talking about China. We were talking about Asia. None of that is talk anymore. It's all real. There's a billion addicts in China getting the message of narcotics anonymous. And you want to know what my vision is? I can't think any better than that. I can't think of anything. 
I want us to do more. I want us to do it faster. I want us to do it better. And then I want us to not forget where we came from. All of that shit's great. But it kind of offends me that the kid in, Nar in, in China has somebody sitting there saying, welcome to Narcotics Anonymous, you never have to use again, and the kid in Orlando doesn't. You know, because they want it now like we wanted it 20 years ago. And what's it going to take for us to want it now like we wanted it 20 years ago? What's it going to take for me to be willing to push a peanut to San Francisco with my nose if that's what it's going to take for me to stay clean? Well, what it took for me was cancer, folks. I had 19, almost 20 years clean, needing sucked up, same old shit, same old people staring, same old shit, yada, 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 right? God, get me focused because I am bouncing off every wall and I'm a lunatic. Nothing will focus you more than cancer, 95% of your body, stage 4, 10% chance of making it through the first round of chemo. What saved my life? You did. People prayed, people came, people called, people loved, people did whatever needed to be done. And guess what? One more time, I'm a miracle. I didn't die. Three years cancer-free, thank God. Celebrated 23 years clean last Friday. Celebrated three years post-transplant. How did I do that? I didn't do it. You did it. All right? But what you gave me back, because I'll tell you how it worked for me. They told me I couldn't go to meetings because I had no immune system. All I wanted to do was go to a meeting. Now, don't forget, I hated meetings the week before that. You can't go. What do you mean I can't go? I've got to go. You can't stop me from going to a meeting. I'm your doctor. I can stop you. All right? But as soon as they let me go... I went back there with the same passion I had the first meeting I went to. Right? Because they threatened to take something away from me. Why won't we see what's going to be taken away from us if we don't have that passion? It's our lives. What are we missing here, folks? And I walked into the meeting and I felt just like somebody else did. I raised my hand and I said, excuse me, somebody tell me where the Narcotics Anonymous meeting is? And they said, what? I said, I thought I was coming to an NA meeting. I didn't know this was Parents Without Partners. You know, what the hell's going on here? What happened to the steps? What happened to recovery? What happened to something? I don't want to hear that your mother didn't give you your allowance. You know, that's what you got a sponsor for, man. Anybody work the steps here today? Anybody want to use? Anybody know how to stay clean? So then it got to the point where I come into the meeting and people go like this, you know. Good. They should. Right? Nothing's changed. You want us to go to a meeting, I'm supposed to hear about solutions. I'm supposed to hear about recovery. I want to hear about the steps. I want to hear about how I stayed clean today. I want to hear about how I dealt with not getting my own way one more time. You know? And thank God I don't get my own way because it damn near kills me every time I do. But that's my vision. My vision is that those people who don't have the passion that you people have because you're here, that we find a way to give it to them. I don't know what the answer is, but that's my vision. That's my dream. I want... I want everybody who's capable of it to love Narcotics Anonymous as much as I do and have a passion for recovery in the newcomer as much as everybody else in this room has. Thanks for letting me share.